you're listening to the podcast edition of One Love, One Planet. with Alex a couple of weeks ago and I he's a musician and I started off by asking him um, how early he got into music and actually I do need to tell you a couple of other things about this at one point he's talking um, about different sounds in plants and he mentions a spider plant um, but then moves on to talking a little bit more generally and the sounds that you hear that I added are actually the sound of an oak tree so you will know when you hear them. Um, so it's two sounds and it's the sound of an oak tree. Um, and also I had just, I was just getting over COVID. So sounding a little bit throaty. So sorry about that. Um, anyway, so this is Alex talking about when he first sort of, his first memories of, of getting into music. My brother tells me this story, but I don't know whether it's really true. He said that when I was about two, I was so obsessed by a Jimi Hendrix Purple Haze EP that I carried it around with me and slept with it and used it like a comforter. So probably quite early on, <laughs> if that's true. Wonderful. <laughs> um, and can you tell us a bit about your upbringing um, in terms of you and nature? So I had quite a feral upbringing. So, so I, I wasn't really, I, didn't, I wasn't looked after. I was the sort of child that would steal a packet of fags and some comics and go and take a suitcase and go and sit in the woods on my own, really very young, I mean really horrifyingly young, and sit around smoking fags and being on my own in nature. So I'd always been, but the, but the point of that is, is that I've, I was always allowed to kind of go and do stuff in woodland and out in nature and not be frightened of it or scared of it. I just saw it, I saw it as a totally wonderful place to go and exist. And because my father was quite interested in the environment he also would then um you know guide me through that process and so so I always grew up loving trees and being interested in the earth and everything just because of the, I I it was it was just part of my existence it wasn't something that was strange or weird or or mm. you know going out into the woods is a bit spooky it just wasn't like that mm. and when did you start actually sort of making making music writing music uh, well, I was I, I, I started learning the guitar when I was about probably quite old. I must have been about thirteen or something like that because I, I I didn't really function very well. I didn't have very many friends or anything, so I then became, went more and more to the fringes and then started playing electric guitar, which then gave me loads of friends and you know ways of socialising and having structures that meant that I could be in bands and that kind of thing. So I started doing you know I was in punk bands and all that kind of stuff. And then, so, so in my mid-teens, I guess. Right, okay. And can you tell us about how you, uh, well, let's, let's, let's talk about your, the music that you, you get from plants. Can you, yeah, how did you get into this, this world, which sounds quite esoteric? Well, uh, I've, I've been, obviously been making music for a very, very long time. And one of my followers, uh, a, a good friend of mine, about four years ago said that there'd been this device that had just been invented or just been marketed called it was I think it was called the midi sprout and it was a device that measured the electrical acti activity of plants and turned it into midi now midi is an amazing language it was invented in the 80s and it's basically 
a way of getting synthesizers to talk to each other or, or get a computer to play a synthesizer or get a computer to play a virtual instrument. But it's a way of getting um, uh, pitch notes from electrical activity. So this device, if you plug it into a tree or, or even into the mycelium in the earth, you get elect electrical activity coming out of the ground and then that an algorithm turns that into MIDI and then I can record that onto a computer. Now, that hasn't got any um, sound to it. It's just simply numbers. So it might be a C or a C sharp or, or a B. And then, and, then, and then how long that note's being held for and how quickly that note's being played. So the plant or the, or the living organism can choose the pitch and the tempo and the cadences of the musical structures, but it can't actually choose the instruments. So it's a bit like having the environment as a composer, and then I've simply got to find the musicians or the orchestra or whatever you want to, what to call it to make the actual noise. But I haven't, I haven't chosen the notes. I mean, obviously, sometimes I might add human notes to a, to some sort of uh, event that the planet's made. I might think, oh, it would be really lovely if. Uh, I put a guitar part over that end before we then go off into a you know a, a mushroom or something, but the the the, the plants have, have have made that soundscape uh, possible. So, if you're <clears throat> you're not actually getting any sounds, how do you know what instruments to ascribe to which sort of waveforms? I mean, do you put an instrument that sounds more appropriate for a higher waveform? No, I tend to, I tend to do that in probably what you would consider to be a more traditional fashion. It's just if I'm if I'm listening to something made by an oak tree, uh, and I think that it would be really nice if this had a bass part, then I'll change the sound until I, you know I'll I'll add a you know, a nettle or something that and then I'll make the sound so as they fit with each other. So I will produce it. I will um, decide on on the mix of that music so as it has a, a pleasant audio quality to it. I, would, I wouldn't just leave it all in a kind of like massive soup or it would just sound like 35 guitarists all playing together. It would start to, it would start to become difficult to listen to. Because obviously my motivation is to try and get humans to look at the environment in a slightly different way. So, I, so although I don't want to make it sound twee and sort of floaty and, and humanised with nice loops and structures, I still want it to sound like a plant made it. I do want it to sound pleasant enough for people to to listen to it at all, or else I've obviously completely lost. Because if everybody thinks it's too weird, then that's that becomes pointless. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, can you to somebody who's never heard it before, um, sort of, and and sound that you haven't added any of your own sort of more human elements to? How would you describe it to somebody? Well, somebody said to me about two weeks ago that the music. Even when I was, and I was actually playing guitar for something, they said it sounded like um, a geographical event or it sounded, you know, it sounded like uh, a storm, like building up over the horizon or, or a sunrise or something. And I'm, and I'm really interested in that as an idea. I like that because I think that when you listen to things that are traditionally human, they have a, a machine quality to, to the, don't they? So we have regular pulses and time signatures and all that kind of thing. And obviously, data that you could... So if you look at... If you tried to describe the maths of a hedgerow, it would be insane, wouldn't it? It's not <laughs> neat, straight lines. It's massively complicated maths. So, but it still looks beautiful. 
but it's not going along in these neat straight lines. So that's what I'm trying to do with the music, or that's what I'm trying to allow myself to experience the music. So it won't go verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, chorus, chorus, mm. end. That isn't going to happen. In the same way that you, if you were to walk into a woodland and all the trees were perfect kind of rectangles and circles and crosses, we'd all think something really seriously had gone wrong. But we would look at that woodland and think it was beautiful. So I'm trying to make the music manifest that, mm. to, to, to be as complicated or as, or as diverse or as, or as, as dynamic as, you know, water running over a cliff or, or, or rocks forming or something. It's, it is mind-blowing. It's fantastic. Um, right, before we say anything about that particular track, Alex, let's just backpedal. Can you tell us about um, how you created this particular album, what it represents? Okay, so um, near where my father's grave is, because my father's grave happens to be near where I... Because my, my dad, being who he was, insisted on not being... Uh, carried across parishes or anything like that because he because he was so atheist. So he wanted to be buried on his own land. So he he's buried quite near to my to where the studio is. And I noticed that there were some magic mushrooms growing quite near to where he's buried. And I thought it'd be hilarious, and he'd find it incre- incredibly entertaining if I took the data from those magic mushrooms, which I which I did, and then I turned it into and then I used that as the basis for the entire album. Um, because I'd been doing a show called Plant Noise on Camp Radio, and I and I and I did that. I, I took that data and I turned it into an entire hour's worth of, of of strange stuff and you know bits of bits of music and and field recordings from around where he's buried. Um, and uh, John John Carriage from Irregular Pattern said said that I, he thought I ought to turn it into an, into an album, and I was like, well, "Are you sure?" It's, isn't it? And he and he thought it was he thought it was a really good idea. So then. He made me make it more accessible because I then chopped it up into the 10 pieces of music rather than it being an hour's worth of ridiculous sort of submersive noise. Um, he made me turn it into uh, a much more accessible body of work, which then became the album Subcubensis. Um, uh, that was that, so that's how it came mm-hmm. to be. It's, I had it on just... <clears throat> playing in the kitchen when I was cooking and I just thought it's so meditative it it reminds me sometimes when you're feeling um it's like if you've say if you've been bitten and you can feel your body there's this sort of rush 
of activity. You can kind of almost feel it on your skin and you can feel all these, it's like you can feel all these tiny things charging around at the speed of knots and there's this sense of this incredible activity and that's how I feel listening to your music. Oh, well, that's that's beautiful. It's amazing. That's amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. loved is the fact that because some of it does sound kind of quite discordant and yet and yet it sort of feels harmonious and I thought well this figures because we are kind of listening to life going on and all these incredible sort of striations of activity that probably mirrors what's going on in our own bodies and so it just somehow kind of I don't know it's extraordinary I think I think that's a, that's a really interesting point actually because when we listen to um, what we would consider to be completely normal average human music and we're following a pulse or there's a drum pattern or something like that, that's ticking all the right boxes inside our brain immediately. It's a bit like going to McDonald's or something. You walk in there, you get you get the correct calories, you get a nice hit, and then you walk out and then it's gone. And I think to to a certain extent we've become very addicted to that very quick hit from the music that we listen to. We want it to go in there, make us feel really good, make us want to dance, make us feel happy, make us feel sad. And then three minutes later, that stops. And then we have another one and so on. And we're, and we're constantly going through this, perhaps not necessarily fulfilling experience because we could, we're going for the hit, we're going for the dopamine and then we're getting in there. And what I think, I mean, this is only my own theory, so it may not be true. But what I think by listening to the music that's been made with nature as a source, if you can allow yourself to not panic that you haven't been excited by this in the first 15 seconds or you haven't been satisfied in three minutes, I believe that the the, the, the state of mind that you can train yourself to get into is 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 a really good place and it might be closer to, um, you know, a listening pattern that perhaps is good, is very good for our own mental health. Mm. I think it's I think it's a very interesting way of being carried I, I, I feel transformed by it even when I'm doing it so it's sort of I'm listening to it and I've got to put another part in so like in Subcubensis when you just heard it there was a guitar part in that that we were just listening to but I wouldn't drop in to the second section and put that guitar part in I'll put it I'll put it running at the beginning and even if that might be because if I'm doing a radio show it might be like 20 minutes in or something I'll wait until I get there go through the process, whatever I think it is, and then carry on back through again. So rather than it being like recording a verse or a chorus, it has to be the right notes that follow that particular moment, and then it will go on again, and then I might do another live interlude somewhere else. But it's, it's all about allowing, giving yourself time. Mm. And, of course, we don't do that, do we? We, we? we want everything to be faster and quicker and bigger and more and of course, that's that's led us to where we are now as a species, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. we might be on the precipice of something 
not very good for us as a, I mean, the planet won't make any, won't, won't care, it'll carry on. But for us as a species, we've got to, I think, we've got to find a way of thinking perhaps in a slightly different fashion with, with less, just wanting instant satisfaction mm. and be there for the long game, yeah. whether that's a relationship, a job, or, or the music that you're writing. It's all the same conversation. It's all, it's all the same. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think <clears throat> one of the things I really love about it as well is it's not emotionally neutral, but it is. It's not designed <clears throat> to make you feel happy or sad. And so it does feel more meditative um, and kind of lifts you then, I think. Um, well, of course, it's not, it's not really being designed. It is simply collecting what's come from the environment. So, so you're right. I mean, sometimes I listen to it and I will be emotional about a certain section or, you know, it might make me feel happy or sad or whatever it happens to be. But it's, it's a slightly different state of consciousness rather than... It just isn't the same. It just no, isn't the same it, as listening to music that has been completely and utterly generated by a human being. It just has a different... Yeah. makes you feel differently. It, it does. And it, again, just going back to sort of what, what it evokes for me is, you know, you see those sort of cross-sections of plant of cell life and these little tiny things rushing through um, whatever it might be, the platelets in blood or whatever. That's, that's how that seems to be a sort of visual... Well, I suppose it, it, is, it is not just a visual depiction. It is literally what this music is, isn't That's it? Is that is what it exactly, is. That is exactly what it is. It's so if what you we're take, hearing. So if I take a simple... The, one of the first things I ever recorded was uh, a spider plant. And, I, and, obviously, and obviously I was completely excited about it. So I stuck it into this synth and I was just sat and just, just literally on my desk. Uh, and then the first thing as a human that you do because this is what humans are, basically. So you had, so I collected the spider plant, and the spider plant's going, da, 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 you know, doing whatever it does. And I go, right, what happens if I tear a leaf off? Because that's, of course, that's the first thing that a human's going to do. So I tear the leaf off, and then it completely changes what's going on. And it starts doing, when plants are distressed, they start doing these ascending sort of notes that go up to incredibly, so they start very, very low, and then they go up to really, really high, and then they drop, and they go back down to the low. Eventually, after perhaps half an hour or something, it kind of calms down to, it's probably just a repair activity, but anyway, but it, and then it calms down to its, to its activity before. If you, and if you water them or, or, or set fire to them, or, you know, all these different things, they change what's going on. And when you see something change because you've just mm. attacked it mm. or you've just murdered it, it makes you feel incredibly different. Because, it, I mean, it, it's astounding that we are here today having this conversation and that we exist. That is just, that is just amazing. Mm. But I, I think sometimes that we forget 
but it's all being facilitated by other organisms, whether that's mycelium breaking down our rubbish back into something that the plants can then consume or the plants giving us food and oxygen. I mean, how lucky are we? Because basically we don't do anything. We just piss about doing all, all, all the irrelevant stuff that make us feel good about ourselves, whether it's standing on stage somewhere and singing to somebody or, you know, getting a job as a teacher. But that's, that's nothing compared to building an entire structure of existence. That's nuts. It sounds, um, <laughs> I mean, it sounds to me like, <coughs> sorry, um, has <coughs> hearing plant music changed your attitude to nature? It sounds like maybe you had it already. You already felt very close to it. And... Possibly. I, I, don't know, I, I think when you pick an apple and you're recording its data and then you watch it slowly die, because it basically the activity stops once it's completely dead, uh, that you're not going to be the same afterwards as you are before. Um, I mean, I, I, like I'm just reading a, a wonderful book by Merlin... Sheldrake called Entangled Life, and he's like you know a proper scientist who really knows his stuff. And his feelings about mycelium and how they're really the 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 power the powers on this earth to make the whole thing work and run smoothly are so far reaching and possibly. I mean, it's a bit like you know, it wasn't very long ago that we would have looked at, and still people would you might look at a dog or something and just see it as some sort of tool that we can use to go and kill things or protect ourselves. But the more that we understand animals, the more that we understand plants, the deeper our knowledge of an octopus or anything, it seems to be that they don't become less when we learn more about them. If I don't know if anything has ever become less when we've learned more about it, but it always feels that the more empathic and understanding we are of any organism, the more amazing they become Absolutely. rather than the other way around. <laughs> I mean, there are people that would that see different, different, different. They, you know, they think that different humans are less than themselves. So, and that, and that's obviously incredibly stupid. But I, but I, but I think it's probably worse than that. I think that, you know, all life is is precious and amazing, and you, we've we've got to learn. And obviously, we have to consume some of it to exist because that's how we particularly our particular organism works. But we should bloody well appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say thank you to it before. <coughs> Sorry, my voice is very croaky this That's morning. Right. <coughs> I mean, it's odd, isn't it, that historical societies seem to be much more appreciative. And the further down this road we go, mm. the, the less we seem to care. That, that seems a little bit unusual I think that probably goes back to what you were talking we were talking about off air where you were saying you know when you live in cities you are just more removed from real life and I suppose our our, you know our lives have become more and more urban haven't they so in a way I see why and safer yeah we're less we're less affected Mm. by so if it's we're insulated from it for a while aren't we only so far we've been encouraged to be frightened of it Mm. we've been encouraged to be fearful of it you know whether you whether you're making some peculiar demonic drawing of a of a you know a man with a cow's head and 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 uh, pig's feet or something, it's all about making nature look like it's the bad guy. Mm. That's what it's obsessed with. Mm. You know, or you're or you're burning a woman because she, she's a brilliant herbalist and she knows a lot about about you know the, those particular plants and fungi in her local woodland mm. and she can cure you. You know and 
and, and she's got a really nice cat that she loves. So some brain-dead moron turns around and goes, oh, we're going to have to burn you then because you're obviously mm. in love with nature, actually. It's, yeah, it's so weird. Oh, my God. Talk about biting the hand that feeds you. Yeah. Um, Alex, what are you working on now? Uh, well, your latest I, I, project? I, I, every <laughs> month I have to do an hour's worth of original material for Camp Radio. So that's obviously a certain part of my creative time. Uh, because I have to go out and collect new data for new places. And I have, I mean, other people do collaborations and I've got millions of artists to help and that's all really cool. So I have to do the plant noise thing once a month. And, and where can people get, um, how do people tune in? Is that just online? Yes. So Camp Radio is, uh, is an internet-based radio station run by Terry Riley or sponsored by Terry Riley and that's in, in, based in the Pyrenees. Um, but they have, a, they have radio running uh, it, it's not 20, 24 hours a day, but it's a lot anyway. But you just go onto Chrome or something and type that in and you'd see all their shows. And, mm. and you can get mixed cloud uh, backups of everything. So that you see, there are just, just hundreds of hours worth of stuff on there. And then my record company, Irregular Patterns, uh, that's where I release albums and, and music and, 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 and all of that kind of thing. Um and then I'm, I've done some live stuff. I played at Glastonbury this summer and I did a thing in the Cube in Bristol about a month ago and I'm probably going to be doing some more live stuff next year because I, I thought, again, John thought that it'd be a good idea and I, was, and I thought, that I, can't, I can't go and do this live. It'll be completely insane and dreadful and I no way I'm going to do that. And then actually it was, it was fine. It was really good. So, oh, fantastic! So, so what, what what do people say about it afterwards? They're totally positive and think it's yeah. amazing. I, I, I mean, that, that's, that's obviously really cool. And I think if if I'm going to get people to pay attention, it's all well and good talking about it and having lots of music and radio shows and all that kind of thing. That, that, that's that's a really a positive thing. But if you if I'm prepared to go and take some random bits of shrubbery or whatever it is. And sit on a stage with my technology and make that make noise, then I'm walking the walk, aren't I? I'm I'm kind of yeah. I'm doing the thing, and maybe that might that might terrify me, or I might wish that I was at home in the woods, you know, collecting some sound for some mushrooms or something. But it it, it means people can see what's going on, uh, and I think mm. I think that's probably that's probably just a necessity. Sound of Plants, and that last track you heard was called Tampanensis, and that's from the same album, 
subcubensis. Um, so, Alex, if you're listening, thank you very, very much for talking to me and explaining all about what you do. Um, and, yeah, just look forward to hearing what else you produce. So please get in touch when you produce your next work. Um, it's, yeah, great. It's wonderful. I want to play a message from Dr. Sarah Robertson from UWE, who came on the show last year, I think, to talk about a climate book club that she set up at the old library on Miller Road. And she's now set up a second book club at Waterstones in town in Broadmead. Um, and they've just had the two latest sort of meetups. And I asked her if she wanted to tell us about them. Hi. I'm Sarah Robertson, and I run two climate change book clubs in Bristol, one at the Old Library in Eastville and the other at Waterstones in the galleries. In November, we discussed two novels. At the Old Library, we looked at Mbolo Mibue's 2021 novel, How Beautiful We Were, and at Waterstones, we looked at Kim Stanley Robinson's 2020 novel, The Ministry for the Future. Mabue's novel that we spoke about at the Old Library is a realist novel set in an African village that faces the devastation to both the local community and its biosphere by extractive industries, namely in this novel by an oil company that puts profit before people and the environment. In our discussion, we focused on how Mabue employs empathy by focusing specifically on particular characters in the village including its children, who we see grow up as the novel unfolds. We also thought about the questions the novel poses about greed, what it might take to stop using fossil fuels, and the nature of resistance, particularly as we see it manifest in the children at the start of the novel as they grow up into adulthood. Turning to our Waterstones discussion, we thought about Robinson's novel, the Ministry for the Future, which is a novel that falls typically under the science fiction genre, but it's not a typical science fiction novel. It's set in a near future where a Ministry for the Future has been created under the Paris Agreement to focus on how to limit the impact of climate change. It's a broad sweeping novel with many different perspectives on the changing climate, and at its centre are two characters, Mary Murphy, who's the head of the ministry, and Frank May, who becomes a climate activist. While these are the novel's main characters, we thought about the ways in which those characters are less developed in this novel than they might be in other novels, because climate is the sole real focus of Robinson's text. We spoke about many ideas that Robinson raises, including the geoengineering efforts in the novel, Mary's focus on global finance and her idea of a carbon coin, and the degree to which this novel dealt with the question of hope and resilience, and how hope and resilience manifested, if at all, within the pages of Robinson's novel. If you'd like to know more about what we're reading and our 2023 Climate Change Book Club Challenge, then you can follow us on our website, www.thisiswhywered.com. And you can also follow us on social media. On Instagram, we're at Climate Change Book Club, or on Twitter, we're at Climate underscore Books. 
Thank you. So until next week, bye-bye.